Welcome back to our study of the Gospel of Mark. In this video, we're going to be in Mark chapter 12, and we're going to notice several things that Jesus is starting to say. Now, keep in mind that this is getting very close to whenever Jesus is going to be uh, crucified. So, I mean, we're, we're getting at the very end of the book. In fact, this is like the last fourth of the book. So, at this time, he's going to start kind of addressing the religious leaders even more directly than what he has before. And, and we're going to take notice of some of those things. And he's going to teach his own disciples the way of Jesus Christ, the way that we need to be willing to follow him in each and every uh, way of our own lives. So let's start off with this parable that he teaches. Now, I know it's a long parable, but I didn't want to break up any, any part of this. That's why it's you know, quite a bit of text. It's, it's 12 verses that we're going to look at. So Mark chapter 12, beginning in verse 1. Jesus then began to speak to them in parables. A man planted a vineyard. He put a wall around it, dug a pit for the wine press, and built a watchtower. Then he rented the vineyard to some farmers and moved to another place. At harvest time, he sent a servant to the tenants to collect from them some of the fruit of the vineyard. But they seized him, beat him, and sent him away empty-handed. Then he sent another servant to them. They struck this man on the head and treated him shamefully. He sent still another, and that one they killed. He sent many others. Some of them they beat, others they killed. He had one left to send, a son whom he loved. He sent him last of all, saying, They will respect my son. But the tenants said to one another, This is the heir. Come, let's kill him, and the inheritance will be ours. So they took him and killed him, and they threw, uh, and they threw him out of the vineyard. What then will the owner of the vineyard do? He will come and kill those tenants and give the vineyard to others. Haven't you read this passage of scriptures? The stone the builders rejected has become the cornerstone. The Lord has done this. It and it is a marvelous and it is marvelous in our eyes. Then the chief priests, the teachers of the law, and the elders looked for a way to arrest him because they knew he had spoken the parable against them. But they were afraid of the crowd, so they left him and went away. Okay, let's notice a few things about this parable. Like I said, Jesus is getting really into addressing these religious leaders. So this parable that he's talking about, by the way, if you kind of compare some of uh, the, the things that he describes here in this parable uh, with a similar parable that appears in the book of Isaiah. So if you want to maybe kind of pause the video, I, I don't have it up on the screen and we're, you know, we're not going to be looking at this together. I'm trying to stick with Mark, but giving you a few things to maybe kind of search out. So you might want to write this down. Or just pause the video and take a look at it. But Isaiah chapter 5. So in Isaiah 5, you'll notice that the parable uh, is very similar. You know, there, there's kind of a vineyard and everything, and a lot of the same images are being used. But right now, Jesus is kind of making, he's taking a story they would be familiar with, and he's kind of changing it a little bit. And he's getting them to realize that, look, this parable, just as they suspected, it is about them. It's about this nation. Because, see, God, of course, is the one who's the owner, and he's the one who sent all of his prophets in times past. How did people treat the prophets? You know, we think about the prophets as being, oh, you know, really good and godly people, and they were, but they were oftentimes mistreated. I mean, you know, when was the last time that you kind of looked and read through some of the prophets? When you read through them and notice what happened in their lives, many of them were mistreated. Uh, you know, they might have even been killed, just like in this parable. You know, the servants of the owner, the servants of our God, they were sent in and they were mistreated. 
at least shamefully treated. But then many of them were, you know, even put to death or other types of hardships. But now I want you to notice and pay special attention to verse 6. Verse 6 says that he had one left to send, a son whom he loved. He sent him last of all, saying, they will respect my son. Think about this. Okay, going to ask the, uh, the obvious question right here. Who is the son? Okay, that's the obvious question. And I think that you've probably kind of worked out who the son already is. The son would be Jesus Christ. You know, that's the son that was sent into the world. But then I want you to think about some of the other things that are connected with this statement. So he had one left to send who was a son whom he loved, Jesus Christ. He sent him last of all. What do you think it means that God sent his son last of all? I mean, think about that. You know, you might even want to kind of uh, pause the video here and, and kind of speak about that with, uh, with some of the people that, you know, you're gathered in a group with right now, you know, some of your family and all. But think about that, that the son was sent last of all. Because I think there's a huge significance in that. Now, there's still going to be, you know, prophets that come after Jesus, of course. I mean, you know, read the book of Acts. You find out that prophets still came. Servants of God still came. So what does it really mean that he sent this son last of all? I think the, the first few verses of the book of Hebrews will kind of shed some, set, shed some light on that. So Hebrews chapter 1, uh, verses about 1 through 3, give or take a little bit, will kind of tell you something about that right there. This son was sent last of all. There's something about the timing of when Jesus was sent. Uh, yes, specifically 2,000 years ago, but I mean also in the sense of we're not going to be expecting some really major event after Jesus. The next major event that we are to be expecting is the, the return of Christ. That's why I think that we get that he was sent last of all. So in the parable, going back, verse 6, the owner says, they will respect my son. Did they respect the son? No. No, they, they, they didn't respect the son at all. And they end up, you know, killing this son. That's what happened to Jesus Christ. Jesus Christ was killed. And then Jesus, whenever he's talking about this parable, he kind of asks them the question, verse 9, what then will the owner of the vineyard do? Think about that. You know, what, what should be done? I mean, these, these people are running wild with his vineyard. He's the owner. He should be the one that's in control. And they're doing all of this to his, his servants. They're doing this to his son. That's the type of respect they have for him. So what should the owner of the vineyard do? The answer kind of makes sense. And we see that here, the way the Mark records it is, that he will take care of this. He will come in and he will do something about it. And he quotes this passage, verse 10 and 11, that is talking about Jesus Christ. Jesus is the stone that the builders rejected. So in verse 12, we find out the chief priests, the teachers, the law, and the elders, they knew that this parable was about them. They just didn't know what to do to end Jesus, to stop him from saying these things. They wanted to put him to death. They couldn't figure out how to do it just yet. They eventually figure out something. That's why some of these others, in fact, the next kind of two stories, uh, maybe three stories that we're going to look at, the next three little sections here in Mark 12, they're all talking about different traps of, of trying to get Jesus to, to say something that they can have a problem with, you know, a religious problem with. So let's look at some of those things that, uh, that they bring up. This first one, 
deals with taxes. Now, this is a question we might even have, uh, you know, today, and, and some people might kind of wonder about, well, well, you know, how, how much taxes should we pay? And is that okay? And stuff like that. Well, let's see what Jesus says. Verses 13 through 17. Later, they sent some of the Pharisees and Herodians to Jesus to catch him in his words. They came to him and said, teacher, we know that you are a man of integrity. You aren't swayed by others because you pay no attention to who they are. But you teach the way of God in accordance with the truth. Uh, is it right to pay the imperial tax to Caesar or not? Should we pay or shouldn't we? But Jesus knew their hypocrisy. Why are you trying to trap me? He, he asked. Bring me a denarius and let me look at it. They brought the coin and he asked them, whose image is this and whose inscription? Caesar's, they replied. Then Jesus said to them, give back to Caesar what is Caesar's and to God what is God's. And they were amazed at him. They were trying to trap him. And, and who is the they here? Sometimes the they is kind of important. I think in this case, it is pretty important because the they is actually the Pharisees and the Herodians. Now, not getting much into this. I think I've kind of already mentioned this a few chapters ago. Uh, but the Pharisees and the Herodians. The Pharisees had their one way of looking at things. The Herodians were the ones that, well, they, they believed that Herod and, you know, the Herod dynasty was, was really important. So they had another way of looking at it. So as far as like politically um, and even, I guess, to a degree religiously, these two groups were on a very different page. But they were coming together on this one because this is how important it was that they wanted to catch Jesus and get rid of him. I mean, the Pharisees and the Herodians, they were able to bridge uh, uh, bridge these gaps that have been separating them um, for a long time. And because they, they had such hatred about Jesus. And I mean, that kind of is important. It illustrates how much Jesus was actually hated. So this question, is it right to pay the imperial, the imperial tax to Caesar or not? Now, this question comes because, you know, there was several groups that... They didn't like the idea about paying taxes because when you pay taxes to Caesar, that goes to the Romans, and the Romans are the ones who are oppressing the Jewish nation at this time. It just doesn't make sense to pay the ones that are oppressing you. You want freedom. But then Jesus knows that they are trying to trap him. That's why he asks for this coin. Which, by the way, isn't it interesting um, that they have the coin among them? You know, Jesus himself doesn't produce the coin. And maybe that's because he just didn't have any on hand or I, I don't know. But whatever the case, he wasn't the one that showed the coin. They are the ones that brought the coin. You know, that's telling you that somebody out there has that coin with the inscription of Caesar on it. And he asked the question, whose inscription is it? It's clearly been stamped. It's been marked by Caesar. And Jesus makes this beautiful statement that we oftentimes know in the, the phrase of render to Caesar the things that are Caesar and render to God the things that are God's. Well, give back to Caesar what is Caesar's and to God what is God's. That way he answers their question in such a way that they can't really argue with it. And they have to they see the logic at it. That's why they're amazed. But this isn't the only group that's trying to trap him. There's another group. In step the Sadducees. Verses 18 through 27. Then the Sadducees, who say there's no resurrection, came to him with a question. Teacher, they said, Moses wrote for us that if a man's brother dies and leaves a wife but no children, the man must marry the widow and raise up offspring for his brother. Now there were seven brothers. The first one married and died without leaving any children. The second one married the widow, but he also died, leaving no children. It was the same with the third. In fact, none of the seven left any children. Last of all, the woman died too. 
at the resurrection, whose wife will she be since the seven were married to her? Jesus replied, are, uh, are you not in error because you do not know the scriptures or the power of God? When the dead rise, they will neither marry nor be given in marriage. They will be like the angels in heaven. Now, about the dead rising, have you not read in the book of Moses, in the account of the burning bush, how God said to him, I am the God of Abraham, the God of Isaac, and the God of, a the, the God of Jacob. He is not the God of the dead, but of the living. You are badly mistaken. So now in these verses, the Sadducees come. Okay, this is a group that wasn't mentioned before. So now we have the Pharisees and Herodians, and now we have the Sadducees. Pretty much everybody is trying to trap him. Um, we, we see that already the people group that was mentioned before, the chief priests, the teachers of the law, and the elders back in verse 12. So, I mean, everybody is lumped in here, and everybody is, is, is teaming up against Jesus, and they want him out. The Sadducees, um, I'm not trying to explain this belief. I'm just trying to let you know about this belief. Keep in mind, verse 18 tells us that the Sadducees who say there is no resurrection came to him with a question. I have no clue how they could claim to be religious, you know, and not believe in a resurrection and, and some of these other things they believe. I, I don't know. I'm not trying to answer all that. It's just they didn't believe in a resurrection. Then why are they asking a question about verse 23 tells us at the resurrection, whose wife will she be? They don't care about that. They don't even believe in that. So they're asking from their perspective, they're asking a nonsensical question. Why are they asking it? They're trying to trap him. And right here, Jesus responds and he tells them, look, you don't know the scriptures. That's why you're in error. That's what he tells them. And I think that we can learn that these are people who should know the law, who should know what's in the Bible. So if Jesus looks at them and says, you're in error because you don't know the scriptures, you know, maybe we need to learn a lesson that we need to be people of the scriptures and we need to know the scriptures as well. He makes this, this connection and he says that whenever the dead rise in verse 25, he says they're not gonna be uh, marrying and they're not gonna be given in marriage, okay? The marriage is not going to be a thing in the life after this one. And then he says, they will be like the angels in heaven. Now, there's no passage in the Bible that ever tells us that we are going to become angels whenever we die. That's not what he's saying. But what he is saying is, look, the angels, there's not a male and a female angel, okay? There's just, there's angels. And in the life after this one, it's not gonna be like a male and a female, okay? Those are very physical things. You know, um, it's not by accident that all the way back in Genesis, whenever the man and the woman are created, uh, the two shall become one flesh. It's a fleshly thing. Male and female, it's a fleshly division. Um, now, it's a very real division. Don't get me wrong. Okay, please don't get me wrong. It's a very real division. There is a difference between a male and a female. But right here, we need to understand that, look, there will be a time in the future whenever there's not going to be like a man and a woman. It's, it's not going to be like that. There's not going to be marriages in heaven. If you will, you know, if you want to kind of use that, use it as a metaphor, at least, uh, the only marriage that's going to be in heaven is the, the bride. Uh, who's going to marry the the uh, uh, the lamb? And what that means is that you know that would be the the faithful of God are going to be married with God, could be in that type of relationship. That's the only marriage, if you will, that's going to happen in the next life. So in the next life, yes, in some ways we will be like the angels in the sense of we're not going to be male or female. That's a physical thing, uh, real thing, but it's a physical thing. 
Whenever we receive new bodies, it's not going to be a part of those bodies. It's going to be different. Then uh, Jesus also makes this statement, and he, he shows them from the, the book of Moses, kind of like one of the, the most important um, passages and stuff, you know, at the burning bush. He says, the thing that God says is, I am the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. Verse 27, he is not the God of the dead, but of the living. And he ends it with, you are badly mistaken. His point is, Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob are still alive. God is the God of those who are alive. So he's implying, look, there's going to be a resurrection. I mean, he's already talked about how there is going to be a resurrection. We know that there is going to be a life after this one. So the Pharisees and Herodians have had their turn. The Sadducees have had their turn. But you know what? Uh, there's still more people who want to try to trap Jesus. Verses 28 through 34 now. One of the teachers of the law came and heard them debating. Noticing that Jesus had given them a good answer, he asked him, Of all the commandments, which is the most important? The most important one, answered Jesus, is this. Hear, O Israel, the Lord our God, the Lord is one. Love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, and with all your mind and with all your strength. The second is this. Love your neighbor as yourself. There is no commandment greater than these. Well said, teacher, the man replied. You are right in saying that God uh, is one, and there is no other but him. To love him with all your heart, with all your understanding, with all your strength, and to love your neighbor as yourself is more important than all burnt offerings and sacrifices. When Jesus saw that he had answered wisely, he said to him, You are not far from the kingdom of God. And from then on, no one dared ask him any more questions. So this question here is, what's the most important law? So this is the teacher of the law, someone who should know the law inside and out. And he has this question, what's the most important one? You know, this was a debate that, that you know, people kind of tossed around from time to time as to what is the most important. And Jesus answered in a very good way about first it's loving God with your whole being and then loving your neighbor as yourself. I love how, you know, maybe you might expect at the end of verse 30 that that would be it. You know, he says, okay, well, that's the greatest. But no, he doesn't. He says that there's more about this greatest uh, commandment. This greatest commandment not only has to do with us loving God, but it also has to do with us loving our neighbor as ourselves. Those are together the greatest commandment. Loving God and loving your fellow man. And the man, he recognizes that, that there is wisdom in that. In fact, he kind of quotes a statement that, yeah, to, to love God and to love your neighbor as yourself, it is more important than all burnt offerings and sacrifices. And Jesus actually, he says some positive things about this guy. He says, you're not far from the kingdom of God. He is almost there to where he's on the right page. Now, he's still not to where he's going to be a follower of Jesus. I mean, we, we don't have an indication of that at least. But he at least understands something about the law. And maybe he can work it out and maybe he at some point became a Christian. I mean, that would be great if he did. And, you know, maybe one day we'll find that out. Uh, I don't think we'll find that out in this life, but maybe in the life that is to come, we might find out this man did become a follower of Christ. Because he wasn't far from the kingdom of God. He started to recognize what God really thought was important. What God really knows is important. And he, he knows that Jesus understands these things. So maybe he did start following him. He definitely is told that he's not far from the kingdom of God. He was on a journey, you know, and, and many of us can be. And some people are, of course, closer to the kingdom than other people. 
And it's so wonderful whenever we can become a follower of Jesus and then be a part of that kingdom. So everybody's kind of had their turn of asking Jesus these questions. The Pharisees, the Herodians, the Sadducees, and the teachers of law. And it says that no one, no one dared ask him any more questions. But now it's Jesus' turn to ask a question. This is what he says. Verses 35 through 37. While Jesus was teaching in the temple courts, he asked, Why do the teachers of the law say that the Messiah is the son of David? David himself, speaking by the Holy Spirit, declared, The Lord said to my Lord, sit at my right hand until I put your enemies under your feet. David himself calls him Lord. How then can he be his son? The large crowd listened to him with delight. So this is the question. The question is trying to get them to recognize something about the Messiah. Now, as my sermon was this, this past Sunday, the Sunday morning sermon, it was about the Messiah. Their expectations versus the reality. Jesus is the reality. And these expectations, they, they had a whole lot different ones. And right here, they expected the Messiah to be the son of David. And he was. But, you know, that kind of leads to a question. How can David call him Lord if, if he's his son? How is that true? The way, of course, that it works out in Jesus Christ is that Jesus was God in the flesh. That's why he could be called Lord. And the crowd was listening to him and understanding this wisdom that Jesus has. And, and Jesus is kind of testing their beliefs, getting them to see that their beliefs do need to change. Then Jesus gives a warning. Verses 38 through 40. As he taught, Jesus said, watch out for the teachers of the law. They like to walk around in flowing robes and greet, greeted with respect in the marketplaces and have the most important seats in the synagogues and the places of honor at banquets. They devour widows' houses and for a show make lengthy prayers. These men will be punished most severely. So they've all had their turn testing Jesus. Then Jesus has his own question. They're silenced. Then he says, watch out. Watch out for that type of behavior. Watch out for the type of behavior that's only interested in asking questions to trap people. That's not the type of people that we're called to be. That's not the type of people that we should be as followers of Jesus Christ. And he says a few things about these people, some lessons that we can learn. We, we need to watch out for these types of, of things being done in our own midst. We need to make sure that we don't fall into the same types of traps that the teachers of the law fell into. It's easy for us to look at them and say, oh, well, these were the ones who were in power and you know, it's, we, won't, we won't be like that. Let's take a look at ourselves and let's make sure that we don't become like that. Because I mean, that, that's what we're called to do. We're called to avoid these, these problems. One of the things that's stated about this group is verse 40, they devour widows' houses. And these men will be punished most severely. They devour widows' houses. Now, you know, obviously they don't, they don't do that literally speaking, but they don't take care of the widows like what they're supposed to. They, they take away from them the things that, that should belong to them, should be able to, to stay among these widows. And that, I believe, is why we come to the last story in this book, in this chapter, sorry. Verses 41 through 44. Jesus sat down opposite the place where the offering were put and watched the crowd putting their money into the, the temple treasury. Many rich people threw in large amounts, but a poor woman, a poor widow came and put in two very small copper coins worth only a few cents. 
Calling his disciples to him, Jesus said, Truly I tell you, this poor widow has put more into the treasury than all the others. They all gave out of their wealth, but she, out of her poverty, put in everything, all she had to live on. Let's see that there's, there's at least two lessons that I think we're supposed to learn from this story. One of them is the one that is so oftentimes pointed out. And it's the one that, you know, we should be willing to give up anything and everything to follow God. That's what this widow shows us. She was willing to give up what little she did have in order to, to follow God. But I think we need to learn another lesson with this too. In verse 42, it says, A poor widow came and put two very small copper coins worth only a few cents. I can't help but think verse 42 is connected to what we looked at in verse 40. That these teachers of the law, they devour widows' houses. I kind of think this poor widow is probably one of those widows. That what she had, it was, it was taken away from her. So she really shouldn't have been put in the place to have to make the sacrifice in the first place. We can learn from that example, yes. But we also need to see she shouldn't have had to have been in that example. In fact, the law of Moses, the, the law that, that they should have been teachers of, told them how to take care of widows and how to make sure that this very thing wouldn't have had to have happened. So I think there's two lessons we can learn. One of them is to have the same character as that widow. But another lesson is a warning. You know, watch out for the teacher of the law. Watch out for that type of thinking. Watch out for this, this behavior that seeks only to, to ask questions in order to, to test or to trap. We need to be people who our questions deal with actually seeking God, seeking the truth. We'll pick, we will pick back up next week with looking at, at more things about Jesus Christ and, and finding out more and more about him in Mark's gospel.